0: As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like, not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk.
1: Las noticias sobre los cigarrillos electrónicos hablan mucho de tecnología y de los adolescentes que los usan. Pero los padres necesitan saber sobre los peligros de la nicotina. Te vamos a contar tres cosas, y tú, cuéntale a otros. 1. La nicotina es una toxina venenosa que puede alterar el cerebro de los jóvenes. 2. Puede intensificar los cambios de ánimo. 3. Puede limitar la habilidad del cerebro para poner atención y aprender. Aún si sabe a dulce, la nicotina es veneno para el cerebro. Visita adiccionalsabor.org para más información. get into it man, you know?
0: are listening to The Church Politics podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbons, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
2: this is the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin gibney justin we missed you last week it's great to have you back on good to be with you what's going on brother
0: yeah, yeah, man. It's been a little minute for me. Uh, I was uh, kind of ripping and running, but I'm glad to be on. It actually seems like i missed longer than a, a week or so, but we're back to doing what we do best, talking about the intersection between faith and politics, and there is not a lack of con-
1: Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for 2.99 subs. How would you like it?
0: Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please.
1: You got it. <laughs>
0: All right, now listen up. I want
1: each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety-nine each. Sir, yes, sir! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.
0: I'm tent for this week, so I'm ready to get to it. Absolutely. And, uh,
2: you know, we had the opportunity uh uh you and I to be on the road a, a bit last week uh doing some some meetings uh and you know it had me thinking that we might need to get a more extensive soundtrack for this podcast uh we uh there was some George Benson going on uh, uh <laughs> and, and so I, I think we need to figure music in a, a bit more uh though of course we love having show. To, 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 top it off each and every week. Uh, well, uh, Justin, uh, at, at the beginning of last week's podcast episode, uh, it was recorded, uh, right as, uh, Justice Kendi had made his announcement at the close of the last session. Uh, and, uh, it, it, it was blockbuster news. It, it was, you know, it's, it's very clear. This is going to take up much of the summer. Uh, but before getting to, Uh, the appointment, which will be announced uh, on July 9th. Uh, Let's talk about Justice Kennedy's legacy. Uh, I mean, he is someone who has been, you know, the swing vote uh, for for years now, uh, casting uh, somewhat controversial decisions, often writing the decisions for uh, these sort of landscape-shifting Uh, rulings, uh, everything from Obergefell. And then even just to close up his time on the court, this last session had rulings on uh, religious freedom, the Masterpiece Cake case, uh, uh, pro-life activism, uh, unions, uh, really, uh, uh, really, you know, uh, uh, top bill uh, items. As you think about Justice Kennedy and where you know, he'll kind of like sit w- what his place is in the pantheon of Supreme Court justices. Uh What do you think of?
0: Yeah. So there had been speculation for a while that he was uh, going to retire. People wondered, would he uh, stay on and try to wait out Trump? Because he might have been worried about that. But we see he decided to go ahead and move on. And when I think of the legacy of uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy Uh, I think of ballots. Uh, Many of you may know that uh, Justice Kennedy was uh, nominated by Reagan, and so he's been on the bench. He's been on the Supreme Court since 1987. And although he is a conservative uh, justice, uh, he was able, as you said before, to swing back and forth on especially on social issues. He showed a willingness to, to kind of side with the left. And, and you mentioned the Obergefell decision, which was uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, there was some Planned Parenthood. I think Planned Parenthood, one of those decisions, he swung to the left as well. And so there was some balance there. And so we see this firestorm about, about him leaving because people fear now that there won't they fear that there won't be a swing vote now and that everything will be shifted to the right. Uh, But but Justice Kennedy, for better or worse, and many people would criticize some of the rulings that he made where he kind of swung to the left. uh, He was willing to do that. And there aren't a whole lot of justices that do that. I I put Kagan in that category. But a lot of times you can pretty much predict uh, on these social issues where uh, these justices are going to end up. And that wasn't necessarily the case for uh, Anthony Kennedy
2: yeah and you know that that raises the stakes for who uh replaces Justice Kennedy uh because he was such a swing vote on, on some some matters uh it, it really raises the stakes and so uh, a lot of the discussion over the past week has been about vindication and who is vindicated uh does this vindicate uh Senator McConnell for? Playing hardball over Merrick Garland's nomination that President Obama made uh, near the close of his time in office uh, was it a vindication of uh, social conservative voters who uh, some of whom you know held their nose but knew that Supreme Court appointments might be coming up uh, and 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 voted for President Trump and, and is this a vindication of of President Trump and and the way that his administration has. So deftly uh, navigated uh, court appointments, not just to the Supreme Court, but to federal courts uh, throughout the country. Uh, What do you, what is your sort of uh, take on all of this? What will this mean for the country to go through, you know, in just, you know, the first? year and a half of the Trump administration to go through two Supreme court appointments nominated by someone who, you know, lost four by 4 million votes in the popular vote, who is under FBI investigation. You know, what does it mean for someone like that to be able to make a lifetime appointment?
0: Yeah, this is a big deal. Uh, There's a reason that there was a firestorm in relation to this. If there's, you know, with all the chaos in the Trump administration, the one place where you can say they've been focused is when it comes to these judicial nominees uh, and the Supreme Court. Uh, they've stick, stuck to their game plan uh, and being very shrewd in going about this. Now, you mentioned it before, and I, and I think it bears, you know, talking about a little more uh, in a little more depth. The whole reason that we're here is because Mitch McConnell, who is the uh uh, uh leader, leader in the Republican leader in the Senate, and the other uh, Republican senators decided not to give a hearing to the Obama appointee. So when Antonin Scalia passed away, uh, Barack Obama was still in office, and so he selected uh, Merrick Garland. And the Republicans who controlled the Senate at the time decided not to put that. Uh, nomination up for a vote i've said this before and i'll say it again i thought that was bad faith politics we can talk about that being the biden rule and all these other things but uh the idea that he shouldn't have chosen who would would be the next supreme court justice merely because he was somewhat on his way out just doesn't you know just doesn't um stand up to scrutiny to me I, i i don't i don't think that's a good faith move because at the end of the day He was uh, Barack Obama was reelected and he had four more years. And so he should have been able to do what presidents do for those four years. One of those things is nominate Supreme Court justices. He wasn't uh, put back in office for two years, three and a half years, three years and four quarters. It was a four year deal. And they should have had that vote. But we're here. And so we have to discuss what's going on. I understand uh, how uh, why liberals are very uh, up in arms about this conversation. They know that if someone is chosen who is a uh, staunch conservative, that this could shift the court from being somewhat balanced to a court that's uh, fairly rightward uh, for a generation. And so that's why nobody is taking this lightly. I don't believe that there's a whole lot that th- that they can do at this point. Uh, and I share some of those concerns. You know, when it comes to voters' rights, when it comes to affirmative action, uh, I worry about. Uh, how a staunch conservatives might get in there and what in the, in the decisions they may uh, come to uh, like yourself. I pref- prefer a balanced court. I would prefer a court court that had a swing vote that, that was really looking at it case by case instead of us just assuming at all times that they're going to go to the right or to the left. And I have respect for, for all the justices, but uh, we want a balanced court. And I say that, and, 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 and I need to be honest about the fact that even when Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, it looked like she would win. I was somewhat worried about what a Democrat uh, in, in the presidency would do as far as making those selections. I wouldn't want it to swing too far left either. Uh, so we're going to have to pay attention to all of this, who he's going to pick. You know, from what I'm hearing, they've kind of broke it down to three different candidates. You have Raymond um, Kelfledge, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, my understanding is that uh, Barrett, uh, who who is the lady, Uh, did not have a great interview with Trump. So she may be out and it may be down to those other two. Can't can't tell for sure. As Michael mentioned, by the time you hear this recording, uh, I believe Trump will have already announced who his pick is going to be. So that's going to be interesting. Something I want to hear from you, I think you've talked about it very articulately, is this hearing. We need to pay very close attention once the announcement is made. What's the hearing in the Senate Judicial Committee going to sound like? Are we going to see religious tests coming from uh, from Democrats? What are some of your thoughts on that, Mike?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I I think first I'd say you so you really laid out the predicament that so many. Uh, Christians who are committed to social justice and have biblical convictions, uh, really the, the vice that we find ourselves in when it comes to something like a court nomination, which is, you know, given the current makeup of the political parties and the types of candidates, uh, that the political parties tend to produce, you know, you're, you're looking at, uh, justices who are going to make decisions that, uh, that make you weep and decisions that make you proud. Uh, and that would be the case no matter, uh, who was making the decisions. I, I mean, I think a lot of the conversation in Christian circles, uh, has been around, uh, that this may be the seat that overturns Roe v. Wade. And, you know, it might be, it also might be the court that, uh, that further undermines the Voting Rights Act of '64. It might also be the court that makes it uh, that makes workplace protections uh, uh, the more sparse. It may be the court that uh, overturns uh, affirmative action. And so these are. Uh, It may be the court that uh, allows the Trump administration to uh, 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 go forward with border enforcement policies that have many of us concerned. And so, you know, I just caution folks against treating court nominations as sort of clean wins or pure losses. That's just not uh, that's just not how it is, especially given the current state of things. Yeah, it, you know, uh, Justin, you asked about the, the hearings and especially if, uh, if Trump does move forward and nominate Amy Coney Barrett, uh, Amy Barrett is, uh, 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 professor at, well, she was a professor before being appointed, uh, to the federal court. She was at Notre Dame. She co-wrote, uh, 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 legal papers with the likes of Robert, uh, Robbie George at Princeton, who's probably one of the, uh, one of the top three or four foremost religious freedom, uh, uh, legal scholars in the country. Um, uh, and she faced pretty rough hearings from Democrats that I, I, and many others spoke out about at the time. Uh, infamously, Senator Feinstein uh, Feinstein expressed concern that uh, the dogma lived loudly in Amy Barrett and and, and questioned whether uh, w- really and what w- what that suggested to me and to many others was uh, Feinstein ex- explicitly putting on the table that maybe Amy was too religious to serve in uh in, in a public role. That maybe maybe she took her religion too seriously um to to serve a Supreme Court justice uh which uh is a violation if not by the very letter of the law, at least the spirit of the religious test provision in the constitution. Uh, and then we saw some other senators, uh, including Senator Dick Durbin kind of nibble around this, this idea, trying to make her religious faith seem, uh, extreme and putting her outside the mainstream. And, you know, the thing that we have to look for, not just as Christians, but as, as citizens is in these hearings, whether it's Barrett or anyone else, uh, The Senate's job is to advise and consent. It's not this isn't a hearing uh, where they all get to talk about uh, whether this person is the exact person they would have chosen. It's not for them to uh, uh, to to uh, to 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 really prioritize their personal uh preferences the, the the president is the one who gets to make the appointment the the senate's job is to evaluate whether the these uh, uh whether the nominee will be uh, uh faithful to the law uh, apply the constitution in cases and and to make sure that there isn't anything uh that would uh, undermine their ability to serve. So for instance, no, uh, no scandals, no financial sort of issues in previous, uh, for previous nominees, sort of uh, not having paid taxes has been an issue and, and uh, things that could undermine the integrity of the court. Uh, and that's what we should be looking for. It is not the job of the Senate uh, to question her, uh, or anybody else's religious faith. Um, now, I would point, Justin. We've discussed this. I, w- I would point to Senator Chris Coons, who uh, will be among uh, the senators uh, uh, at the when Barrett is brought to the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Coons had the ability to question Barrett uh, for her federal court hearing, and he was very, uh, very direct. Uh, he he used up his. Uh, I believe his entire time on religious freedom, asking her about the HHS mandate case. Um, I, uh, Folks, I think, no, I'm a fan of Senator Coons. I disagreed with uh, the implications of some of his questions, but he stayed focused on the legal issues at hand. In other words, we're not saying no questions about religion as it applies to uh the law are off base, but Senator Coons, I think, showed a pretty good uh, model for how you apply uh, for how you approach uh, getting a sense of how the how the justice feels about uh, and how the nominee feels about uh, religious freedom cases without getting into the territory of questioning their faith. Uh, I'll just close with this, Justin, and that is in nineteen in nineteen sixties. Uh, it was Baptists who forced. Uh, a young uh, Irish Catholic who wanted to be president to uh, to get in front of them and promise that he his uh his faith would not uh would not uh supersede his obligation uh to the country that he would not be answering uh to the pope now of course those were different times and the assumption that a catholic uh would uh, be more undermined uh or, or would be uh would not be had less capacity to be faithful to their country than those of other faiths there 's all kind of discrimination and stigma attached to that and I just want to make sure we don 't return to that <laughs> that that you could be a seriously faithful person no matter your faith, and that that doesn 't become subject to some kind of whisper campaign, some kind of smear campaign that happens and I'd say, especially for Democrats, we need to hold the party accountable to that. Pressure, if it's Barrett or if it's, uh, I believe Kavanaugh would be the first evangelical on the bench, Um, uh, no matter who it is, uh, press them hard on their legal qualifications, press them hard on their past rulings. But, but, uh, let's not get into a game that has been played by Republicans in the past, which is using all kinds of personal backgrounds and characteristics um, to, to as a sort of signal smear campaign to our base in order to get
0: them all fired up. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, scrutinize the nominees' opinions, the nominees' rulings, uh, their qualification. That is all fair game. But it is unconstitutional to use their religion uh, as a means to exclude them and to exclude a judicial nominee. And so the 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 Democrats shouldn't even play with that. I mean, you could scrutinize someone the way somebody looks. It'd be stupid and petty and we wouldn't suggest it. But guess what? It's not unconstitutional. And it is unconstitutional to use their religious religious beliefs against them in that form. And so I hope that they uh, avoid that.
2: Yeah, well, I think we're, we're going to be able to talk about this in the weeks ahead once the nomination is announced. On next week's podcast, we'll we'll dig into uh, some of the conversation around Trump's nominee and what Democrats are 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 going to try to do to uh, uh, in in response. Uh, but it's going to be an exciting week uh, politically to see how this all plays out. Uh, you know. Uh, President Trump has been somewhat predictable around courts, unlike really anything else. But I, I still want to put past, uh, uh, put it past him to, to have a, have a surprise here as well. Uh, uh, so, so we'll, we'll, we'll just see. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about the surprise, uh, Candidate Uh, uh, Now the surprise Democratic nominee in Queens, Uh, we're going to talk about ICE uh, and a few other subjects. Uh, This is the Church Politics Podcast.
0: I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald
1: Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person to actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult related questions that are begging to be answered.
2: Two grown men picked him up, a 15 year old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look. They look to us, right? They say, "You fucking ____, This is what happens to you." God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters.
1: I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever. We're you back at the Church Politics
2: Podcast. And Justin, this is something else that has happened since the last time uh, we recorded. And that is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez took. Out Joe Crowley in this Democratic primary in Queens, uh, to the surprise of many pundits. Uh, I mean, the New York Times uh, didn't even really cover her race. There was no speculation the day before, you know, in the newspaper that she had a chance. I mean, she was completely under the radar of sort of national political elites, though uh, some people who, you know, were, uh, uh, I think, Sensing of the restlessness in the Democratic Party's base, uh, w- was uh, was definitely keeping their eyes to the uh, the polling results. But she, she Joe Crowley, for those who don't, Joe Crowley is uh, was um, uh, leadership in the house, he was being discussed as someone who would become speaker of the house, much like Eric canner uh, was uh, was, was being raised as a Potential speaker before he lost in a primary, uh, he was um, Queens, but kind of a blue dog Democrat, um, uh, really a, a moderate member, and ocasio Cortez really capitalized on the fact that uh, uh, that Crowley's district had sort of it, it had changed a lot from when he was first elected, and his politics didn't necessarily reflect the politics of. His district, and so just on that note, Justin, um, I view her win as as something of a win for the democratic process for uh for dis for uh, representatives who who reflect their district. Um, but then, Justin, and this is what I want to ask you about, uh, in addition to your thoughts about the specific race, which is, you know. Sh- now Cortez has now been on, you know, all the Sunday morning shows. Uh, there have been numerous think pieces about whether democratic uh, socialism is sort of the 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 wave of the future, kind of what's next for the Democratic Party. Uh what do you think that this is an isolated thing? of, you know, th- this was a a candidate running in Queens um who uh, who who was able to capitalize on a disconnect between the uh, the member and their district, or or do you think this is uh th- this is a national thing that the Democratic Party is going to have to contend with a major new force that you know perhaps was signaled by Bernie Sanders and now capitalizing the new way by Cortez?
0: You know, I think it's a little of both, and I'll get into that a, l- a little bit once I make this general comment. Uh, first and foremost, shout out to Cup Cortez. Uh, she caught that man sleeping. Uh, she she won by pure hustle. Yeah. and I can, I can yeah. respect that. You know, knocking on doors, uh, beating the streets. Um, she had a, a solid narrative. She said the rate this race is about people versus money. A very See, the the, the the Democrats can learn from these type of messages. She said this is about people versus money. We got the people. They got the money. Very simple narrative, with uh-huh. strong narrative. And she just worked. She outworked them. And I, I think anybody, you know, it, it, to your point, it is always good to see for the democratic process that someone can take down a giant. Uh, and she did it by the right way, by working hard, and I hope that sends a message. And it's good to see a little bit of a, of a shakeup uh, within the the Democrat establishment. I think it's very easy to kind of get complacent and lazy uh, and think that you just you know have it all together. Uh, Cortez is 28 years old. This was this primary was in New York's 14th congressional district, as uh, Michael mentioned. And the the crazy part about it, she is an avowed. Democrat Socialist, which was kind of popularized by uh, Bernie Senator Bernie Sanders. And she ran on issues like the, the, Gre- uh, the Green New Deal, which is an ag- aggressive action on climate change, free education, universal job guarantee and Medicare for all. These are things that uh, progressive Democrats are really getting more and more aggressive about. And so we're going to see this for a while. This shows that there is a divide in the party. Now, uh, some folks try to act like it wasn't a big deal that, hey, it just happened. But this is an isolated (laughs) incident. And that's and that's where the question lies. You asked me about that earlier. This district was set up for this kind of win. Uh, Now, will we see this type of win in the Midwest and in the South, you know, and things like that? I don't know about that. I mean, up until this point, Democrat socialists had had a pretty rough go and they actually had some money behind them in some other races and they just didn't do too well. So I don't know that we'll see this as being just a breaking point to where, you know, Democrat socialists really get big. I don't think they're there yet. However, they do have the momentum. I think they do have a lot of energy. They still have to deal with the fact that the party establishment controls The infrastructure uh, and controls that mechanism pretty well. And so they're going to have a ways to go. But the Democratic Party is going to have to find a way to deal with this. You know, I'm one of the people when we're talking about these Democrat socialists who I think they diagnose part of their diagnosis of the establishment is right. Right. I don't think the establishment pays enough attention to uh, the poor. Uh, to getting having good policy dealing with poverty. So I, I agree with them to some extent on that. The problem is I think their solutions just aren't realistic. Uh, I think their solutions sound very good in theory. But if we look throughout history and we look around us today, those solutions don't seem to be working. And uh, I don't think that they necessarily take into account human nature and dealing with with all these things so that we could get into that. They, we could probably have a whole show about that. But I do appreciate their diagnosis and saying, hey, poor people count. Let's not just talk, just talk about the middle class, although we know that is very important. We got to talk about the poor and not just say, hey, we have to have a safety net. They'll be all right. Let's focus on everybody else. So I appreciate that. Uh, I can always appreciate somebody who put that hustle in the way that she did. But we'll just have to see whether this is something bigger. I doubt that it becomes just kind of like a watershed moment immediately. But the Democrat establishment is going to have to deal with her and people like her. Yeah. Well, you
2: know, what I'm excited about, Justin, is to see, you know, uh, there are a a few others that are kind of in her ideological camp uh, that are part of the Democratic caucus. What's going to be exciting, I think, is to see what happens when it's no longer, you know, platitudes like any campaign is and how she works out her ideas in a diverse body of 400, you know, 35 others who have their own ideas and whether, uh, uh you know, th- that's always the challenge for a movement. Once you get on the inside, you know, uh, are, are you holding to ideological purity and not getting anything done, but feeling proud about how, how wonderful you are, uh, or is she willing to find uh, a narrow but significant ways to partner with people that she might disagree with on a whole whole bunch of other issues in order to to rack up some wins and rack up some policy gains? And I, I'm, I'm really excited to see how it turns out. You know, there are she's part of this Justice Dems uh, uh, ticket that they hope to establish as a caucus if enough of them are uh, elected and so there'll be some primaries coming up as we head deeper into the summer where you know we'll be able to really test whether um wh- whether uh, th- there is a bit of a growing force you know similar and obviously not an ideology but similar you know to the 2010 moment with with the tea party you know whether we have this insurgent voice within a party i Iana press uh, I, I believe Iana pressler uh or or maybe it's uh, presley um is running in uh, outside of boston for a seat there are several uh, several others that have primaries coming up and we'll we'll just see how how they do and and uh, uh you know it should be should be interesting to see and then just the last thing i'd say is it's great to have some young young leadership you know assuming that uh, assuming that Acasio uh wins her seat which it's an overwhelmingly democratic district so so folks expect that she'll be able to to carry that race in november uh i believe she's 28 now um she may be 29 by the time she uh by the time uh she she's actually put in um i th- i think it's time for uh for new leadership, especially in the democratic party, where as has been much discussed, uh, the, the, the leadership, I think the average age of democratic leadership is like in the mid seventies. And so, you know, it's, uh, it'll be exciting to get some, some fresh blood in there. Uh, uh, Justin, I, sort of as we talk about the democratic party, potentially moving left, we, we just talked about a candidate and a campaign, uh, we've also seen an, an issue sort of come up. We saw the the rallies in Los Angeles earlier uh, uh, earlier around the border enforcement policy where we saw signs and speakers calling to abolish ICE. Uh, the, this is the kind of policy proposal uh, that, you know, on conservative, you know, on Fox News and on sort of conservative um among conservative pundits, m- makes it you know very easy for them to uh, to, to sort of patronize to, to liberals and, and uh, sort of paint uh, the Democrats as being outside the mainstream. And indeed, there have been. A, the democratic elected officials who have embraced this idea that we ought to abolish ICE including potential uh, 2020 candidate Kirsten Gillibrand and so uh, just what do you think should we abolish ICE like as a policy matter and then number 2 you know what do you think the politics of this conversation uh you know are going to be
0: yeah it- you know, I, I think it'd be giving it even too much credence to say this is a policy because <laughs> I don't even <laughs> right, right, I don't even really right. consider. Yeah, I don't even really consider this to be a policy. This is something that you tell the base to get them fired up. And I think to some extent it's it's uh, irresponsible. Now, that does not mean at all that ICE doesn't need to be reformed. Um, but to say to to say that we need to abolish it is going a little bit too far. Let me let me give just a little bit of background. So ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, and it's up under Homeland Security. And really what they're there to do is enforce federal laws that are governing uh, border control customs Trade and immigration uh, to promote homeland security and uh, public safety, really. And it was created in 2003 by the Bush, Bush administration when they merged the U.S. Customs Services and the Immigration and National Nationalization Service. They, they put those two things together and created ICE. Um And the really the reason why this came up is because Trump's zero tolerance policy, immigration policy, which was which had the potential and actually was separating families. That was a very extreme and inhumane policy. And I'm for anyone who stood up and said, this is not the way that Americans should move forward. I'm with you. If you stood up and said that's a inhumane policy and that's not how we should be treating people, I'm there for you. However, I don't think it justifies being even more extreme on the left. To say just, you know, open the borders and not have ICE or any enforcement agency when it comes to uh immigration is just not realistic. Uh it, it's somewhat uh, irresponsible uh, to take to take that stance. Uh, and so I'm with former Obama Homeland Security Director uh, Jay Johnson, who said that calls to abolish ICE uh, were unserious and would jeopardize bipartisan immigration legislation. He said it's about as serious. He said saying that we should abolish ICE is about as serious as Trump saying that Mexico was going to pay for the border wall. It's just not something that should be taken seriously. And it actually moves the conversation backwards. Uh, Again, this is not a solution. Uh, This really isn't even policy. Uh, And it's it's really an irresponsible uh, partisan pandering. You know, it's that's all it is. It's pandering. And it moves us further away from a legislative fix. And if me and Michael have been saying anything, it's that we need a legislative fix. So now and s- now we're going backwards. Uh, And we have to debate whether uh, we should even have immigration enforcement, which everybody, every country has immigration enforcement. That's serious. uh, Instead of moving forward about a debate about the real issues and the real distance and how we can come through that distance. One more quick thing. You know, these just aren't reasonable terms. And so when you go to the other party and you say something like, let's abolish uh, ICE, they're not going to take you seriously. That's like that's like two people negotiating uh, a business deal. And I say, hey, I want 100 percent of the profit and you get zero. Well, if you come to me saying that, I'm going to say, you know what, come back when you're you're serious, because I'm not going to negotiate based off unreasonable terms. And that's what's going to happen. And so we push the conversation back because we don't want to be reasonable when we come to the table. Uh, Activists have to be mindful of the complexities of governing. Anybody can knock something down. Anybody can say something needs to change. But to govern is hard to actually build something and make it run and continue to be sustainable. is very tough. Ice may need to be reformed. It does not need to be abolished because all you do is have to create another agency that would serve the same purpose. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly
2: right. Yeah, I mean, Justin, whoo. (laughs) uh there's a lot there i hope i hope folks will uh, maybe go back and rewind and listen to what justin just said again you you know this conversation around the border not specifically around ice but the whole border immigration conversation over the last month month and a half has been frustrating on, on a number of levels obviously the 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 moral tragedy uh, that has been instigated by our government is is I mean that's beyond frustrating, uh, but from a from a policy and political perspective, it's been it's been frustrating for for me because it seems like uh, no one wants to talk about what they actually want done, or at least not Democrats. I mean there are Republicans out there saying exactly what they want want done, including Donald Trump. And and uh, you know those are awful ideas. Democrats seem to be uh, many of them seem to be be very content to sort of put all the pressure on those in power to to allow ideas like abolish. You, you know, it's some it it says something that you had to cite a former. Uh, secretary for Homeland security. Like he's not an elected official anymore. Like I'm sure that there have been others in office to say, but, but it indicates something when it's former electeds who have to say something about what a, uh, uh, half-baked idea that is, uh, and not, not current elected officials. Uh, and, and actually John Lovett over at, uh, over at Crooked Media and, and, um, pod save American kind of that whole, he actually made a very similar point for those who don't know, John Lovett was from a colleague of mine was a speechwriter for Obama is now sort of a resource for uh, talking, po- democratic talking points and sort of democratic thought. And, and he said on, on their episode, this, this exact same thing, which is uh, every country, as you said, Justin has a border enforcement policy. Uh, we, we, we had a proposal back when president Obama was in office and back when we tried to do immigration reform, uh, in the Bush administration, administration even, but right now there doesn't seem to be anybody saying, okay, what is the right amount of immigrants to be, uh, to, to, uh, to have legal immigration into the country? What do we do if, uh, uh migrants try to legally cross our borders uh, several times. The first time, w- what do you do? The third time? I mean, there's a reason why uh, Obama's uh, director of domestic policy said that th- the the idea of family separation came up in Obama administration conversations. She said it was a five minute conversation. It was dismissed. But the reason it came up is because, uh, like, there are relatively few. Uh, levers that a government has uh, to both uh, prevent uh, uh, illegal immigration from taking place and to dissuade illegal immigrants from uh, trying to uh, come in illegally. Uh, And so these are just very serious policy questions. And like you said, Justin, abolish ICE doesn't come within miles of a a serious uh a, a serious attempt at addressing them and i think the reason why that is justin is because uh the, these uh, the the attempts to answer these policy questions aren't going to be pleasing to everybody they're not going to be pleasing uh to the base of either party and so what we end up with is a politics of sloganeering and sort of uh nice a bumper sticker uh, uh, policy suggestions like abolishing ICE or abolishing the P- the EPA or the Education Department, which really just stand in as ciphers for uh, more uh, more sophisticated critiques of uh, of these areas of policymaking. And, and let so, me say this: uh, to, I'm not the expecting activists. the conversation to evolve. Yeah.
0: Yeah. L- let me say this to the activists who 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 are pushing this forward and, and others, Gillibrand and folks who who think it's a good idea to get behind this. You're not helping immigrants. The people who need this help the most are dreamers and others. You are not helping them by pushing an unreasonable policy that, you know, will never be enacted. You're actually hurting them because you're hurting the conversation. You're hurting the negotiation. It does not help these people who get Treated any kind of way because they they're not registered and, and uh, certain employ employers know they can't go to police. They get robbed because certain people know as they're working, they can't go to police. You're not helping them by coming up with these with these outrageous and extreme policies, being serious and having the tough conversations where you look at the true dynamics of the situation is how you help them. Getting legislation that can get passed that's humane is how you help them. You don't help them by coming up with stuff that is just completely outrageous.
2: That's right. Well, you know, uh, uh, it's uh, like I was saying, I don't expect this conversation to become more uh, sophisticated or detailed anytime soon. The 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 passions are very high for good reason. Uh, and uh, frankly, the political benefit And this has been a problem with immigration policy for a long time. The political benefit that both parties see in allowing this, this issue to not be resolved, uh, outweighs the benefit that they see in resolving it, which is deeply unfortunate. And we need to start holding, we need to continue to hold both parties accountable, uh, for, for, uh, reaching, uh, for, for attempting to resolve these issues. And like Justin said, that looks like comprehensive immigration reform that uh, once our public debate uh, grows up, we'll turn back to again. Uh, we're going to take one more break. When we get back, we're going to talk about what happened in Chicago uh, this past weekend. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
0: I love my family. I'm best friends with my dad. And then this 2016 election cycle came up, and it really drove a wedge in between some of us. Donald
1: Trump's the first person that got us. He's the first person to actually at least pretend to give a damn about us. Check out Depolarize, the podcast that fights against tribalism and incivility by searching for common ground at the intersection of politics, psychology, and faith. This season, we look closely at the phenomenon of white evangelical support for Donald Trump and the many difficult related questions that are begging to be answered.
2: Two grown men picked him up, a 15 year old kid, and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car. Uh, and it's shocking. It's shocking. His whole, all his teeth came out. Uh, he's bleeding all over the place. And they look. They look to us, right? They say, "You fucking This is what happens to you." God isn't far away. God is with us now, here, now. Every moment matters.
1: I don't know why I'm crying. It just, it just hurts. Find Depolarize on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, we saw uh, this past weekend uh, Father Michael Flager at St. Sabine in Chicago, who's uh, a I'd been one of the leading civil rights activists and, and neighborhood activists in Chicago and in recent years has become someone of more national notori- notoriety he participated in uh uh i believe CNN's uh town hall forum on on uh gun violence and and racism uh and he's Uh, He worked with young leaders in Chicago, young activist leaders in Chicago to protest around gun violence and other issues uh, in the city of Chicago this uh, this weekend. And they ended up uh, uh, part of the part of the um, the disagreement there was they said that they were going to close down the Dan Ryan Expressway, which is one of the dominant. Uh, uh, Expressways in 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 the country and you know in in the third largest city in the nation, uh, there was a lot of back and forth. It, it turned into a political thing where the governor, uh, uh, Rahner, who's a Republican, was very much opposed to Chicago allowing them to do this. But uh, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor, uh, uh, actually in the days leading up to the protest actually expressed his support, and there are all kinds of reasons for that, that we could get into. Uh, but, but, you know, what, what I'm, uh, I, I something, uh, somebody said, said, um, uh, just today I saw on Twitter was, uh, you know, if if you think religion is irrelevant, you know, he said, you know, look to Chicago, where you know a priest and uh and several other clergy members, you know, shut down you know an expressway in in America's third largest city. Uh, yeah, Justin, I'm I'm interested, you know, to to see what you what you think about this kind of activism i uh, i guess the last thing i'd say here is it, it has been a bit um has been a bit confounding to see the the this a lot of the people who uh, ask why people in chicago never get upset about uh, the murder rate in Chicago. You know, like it's it's always a quick put down in the in the national gun debate. Well, you know, why don't you focus on on the city of Chicago rather than telling you know people in West Virginia they can't? Uh, but then you know, people, uh, young people especially. In, Go out and protest, and have, uh, you know, have have requests, and want to see an end to violence, and the people are criticizing that. So it's just like, you know, the, the 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 games playing is is an interesting element of this. But but what what did you think of the protest? What do you think of Father Flager's role in it, uh, and and some of the response?
0: Yeah, so I know we haven't done this in a while, but I'm going to go ahead and give uh Father Flager, uh, our church folk champ for the week, uh for for him taking uh initiative to do something about the violence in Chicago. As many of you know, uh Chicago, I mean the the gun violence in Chicago is just extremely sad. Uh, I have a pastor friend who who's a pastor in the South Side of Chicago who recently had two young men associated with his church uh lose their lives uh to gun violence uh 244 people uh already this year have been murdered in Chicago most of those being black men around the ages of 20 and 30 and it just it has to stop father flegger has been in the game for a while Now, he's been doing everything that he can uh, to to make this stop. And so I think in this instance, he showed that he really uh, used his leverage to make some noise so people would pay attention to what's going on. Shutting down the Dan Ryan is no small task. Uh, I know that a sh- Chicago authorities wanted uh, them to use a city neighborhood street as an alternative, but obviously that wouldn't have made the same statement. And they even thought that they had come, had, they had reached a compromise where the protesters would only use part of the northbound lanes, but actually ended up using all the lanes and shutting down uh, the northbound side of of that Dan Ryan. It was a big deal and um, I'm glad that I, I hope some people are listening to what was happening. Now, what I like about what Flager did, and this goes to your point about uh, is this, you know, useful is he said this. He, looked, he said today was an in- attention getter. But now comes the action. And that's it. Um, I don't have a problem with protest and, and people standing out and making their voices heard. I support those type of things in certain situations. But his understanding that this is just to get the attention. Now we need to do something more uh, shows that he, he gets it. He's been in the game for a while and there's a lot that we could learn from him. You talked you talked a little bit about the politics. Obviously, the governor of Illinois was against it. I can't really see any governor being for it. Right. Right. Um, it'd be hard to see somebody being forced shutting down uh, the highway in, in the major city. And it is interesting that Rahm Emanuel supported it. Now we know Rahm Manuel probably needs some street cred and that, that might have something to do with it. And the fact that he may not have been the main one to have to deal with it. Uh, but all that back and forth, I really hope that at the end of the day, something is done. Our young men are dying. When we say that 244 people have died, that's people with mothers, uh, brothers and sisters, children, people that care about them, church family and all. And, and that is a hurting city. And so I don't know that I have the answer, but people need to pay attention and we need to be focusing on ending this violence. Uh, hopefully this is the start of something bigger.
2: Yeah. And you know, they, uh, these students made a concrete or or young people, I'm I'm sorry, these young people made a concrete request for a meeting with their local officials and they should be granted, uh, that meeting, uh, the, these are, the, these young people aren't, aren't just showing up out of nowhere. They're, they're actively involved in trying to make their communities better. Uh, and they deserve to be heard by their representatives. Uh, and so I, I hope that meeting takes place. It did take me a, a little bit of time to find out whether there were concrete demands associated with the protests. Um, but, uh, I was able to find, uh, there's a, uh, shy I believe is the website. Um, obviously stands for Chicago strong and was able to find, you know, five, you know, pretty, pretty loose, pretty, pretty general, um, uh, demands, but demands nonetheless for additional resources for, um, uh, for, uh, national gun laws. And and so, you know, I, I think I would, I would commend them too for, for not just, uh, not just expressing, uh, despair or anger about the, the current state of things, but trying to have a conversation about what it looks like to move forward. Um, Justin, I, w- I will tell, I wasn't planning on doing this, but it just came to mind. Uh, I've talked on the show before about David Garrow's um uh, uh, biography of Barack Obama uh, that, that covers a lot of like the early Chicago days. And just in that, just, just as an, an example of father Flager, uh, having, you know, been in the game for a long time, uh, Garrow tells a story that, uh, Flager, uh, during the drug epidemic, uh, 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 in, in Chicago, uh, Flager would go into known drug dens, uh, and uh take drugs um and and literally flush them flush them down the toilet in the in the drug den uh and he'd only have a couple people with him but he'd be wearing his collar uh and obviously you know these were dangerous situations uh but uh you know, he basically asked the people, do you really want to kill a, a man of God? And obviously he, he he made it out alive. Sometimes he'd get, you know, a good elbow to the face or something on his way out. But uh, but I thought that was a, a really incredible story of the things that 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 clergy do to look out for uh souls of those in their care, which is certainly what was motivating Flager in that circumstance. So uh I just thought I'd share that story. And uh you know obviously Flager's activism uh is has long is long standing and it's carried over uh to to today. Um so again I, I hope those young people get their meetings with officials. And frankly, you know if the governor is so um, upset about the expressway being closed. He ought to meet with these young people and, and find out uh, what they want from government. So they don't have to be in the street. All right. That's right. Uh, Justin, it's a great episode. It's, um, you know, usually we look ahead to July, August is, Oh, you know, it's going to be slow people on vacation. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, I don't know how we continue to be surprised by it, but it looks like this summer isn't going to be slow in terms of news uh, at all. Uh and so we'll we'll have a lot to cover in
0: weeks ahead.
2: A- any final words for uh for folks before we close out this episode?
0: Yeah, just be looking out for uh, who who the uh, nominee is going to be for the Supreme Court and uh, pay attention to the hearings. Uh, if you are a, a Democrat uh, like me and uh, Michael are, make sure that you're shouting as loudly as you can. No religious tests. There are a lot of things we can scrutinize, but it shouldn't be people's religion.
2: Absolutely, we'll we'll close it out there, folks. Thanks for listening. Have a blessed week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Thank you
1: very much.
0: The all new Toyota Rav Four asks, "What if? What if your ride was refined?" That's what tobacco companies tell you. Here are three things tobacco companies don't say. One, many teens don't know their flavored e-cigs have nicotine. Two, nicotine is a poison that can rewire the teen brain. Three, 80% of kids who tried vaping did it because of the flavors. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more.
2: This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series, Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com slash ct.